0: John chapter 12, we're going to read one verse to begin with, and that's verse 24. John 12 and 24 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Amen. The Scriptures, the Word of God, and uh, in particular, For the sake of this morning's lesson, the Old Testament hold within its pages many types and shadows. Uh, What we mean when we use that expression, types and shadows, is that an object that we read about, uh, a practice, a ritual, a routine, or even a person can be an example of something that is yet to take place. It, It paints a picture for us that is an illustration of something that is yet to come. And when we read in John 12 and 24 that Jesus spoke of a corn of wheat or a grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying. And, and he said, unless that happens, there'll only be the one grain of wheat. But if it, if it is sown or falls into the ground and it dies, it will bring forth much fruit. Jesus wasn't interested in a lesson on farming, but he was using the example of, uh, of that natural process to paint a picture. He was talking, when you read the surrounding passage in the context he was speaking of how his death was, was drawing near and how that time would come where if he was not willing to go through that process of crucifixion and, and the, the burial and resurrection, then, then the, the purpose of his coming would not yield the fruit that it was designed to yield. And uh, there are many, many types and shadows that we find in the Word of God. And one very easy example from the Old Testament is the story that some of us learned since we were children in Sunday school, and that's the story of Noah and the Ark. Some people dispute the reality of this story, but if it's in the Word of God, I'm willing to accept that God said it happened. But to give you an example of how that literal event is also a type, Noah, the Bible tells us, was a preacher of righteousness. And uh, we, in in the church today, are also required to be preachers of righteousness. The flood that came upon the earth was the judgment of God upon sinful humanity. And that's a type or a shadow or an example of the judgment of God that will come upon sinful humanity again at the end of time. We know from the Word of God it won't be in a flood, but there will still be a time of judgment. The account of Noah tells us that the ark was a way of escaping judgment, that if they obeyed the preaching of Noah and they entered into the ark, they could escape the judgment that was coming. The ark is a type or an example of the church, not the physical building, but the body of believers that if we will listen to the preaching of the gospel, if we will get in the church, in other words, if we will be born again, we will also escape the judgment of God. All of these things are literal events that, that paint a picture for us. The New Testament even tells us in First Peter chapter 3 that as Noah and his family were saved by water, so also baptism plays a part in our salvation and these these, there are many many types that we could find in the word of god in fact i believe today it's accurate to suggest that the majority of what took place in the old testament is in one way or another a type of a, a type or a shadow or an example of what would come to pass in the new and when we read the scripture through that lens recognizing that So many of the stories and the things that happened in the Old Testament, in their literal sense, are difficult for us to grasp. They paint a picture for us of God's desire and His ultimate fulfillment in the New Testament. To further substantiate this, in the book of Colossians chapter 2, when talking about the law of Moses, the apostle Paul said that the law was the shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ. So in other words, these examples, these types and shadows in the Old Testament were showing us an outline of something, giving us some indication of what was happening. But when Jesus came, it was no longer about types and shadows, but he was the real thing. He was the real deal. He was what everything in the Old Testament was pointing towards. That's what the Bible tells us. And uh, one of the most powerful types or shadows that we find in the Old Testament is the idea of substitutionary death. That when sacrifices were offered, when an innocent animal was offered as a sacrifice for the sin of a person, it symbolically dies as a substitute or in the place of that person. That's what we mean by substitutionary. That sacrifice is a substitute bearing the punishment for the sin of the individual. And this theme of substitutionary death features very regularly throughout Scripture, particularly throughout the Old Testament. And we know now, some generations later, with the benefit of hindsight, we can look back and see that all of that sacrifice and that substitutionary death in the Old Testament that we find graphic and unpalatable was a type of what Jesus would do when He came and was crucified upon the cross. Amen. When He became... The Lamb of God, as John the Baptist described him, who takes away the sin of the world. In his actions, he would be our substitute. He would die in our place and he would take the punishment for our sins. And that's why that theme is so heavily emph- emphasized through the Old Testament because it was pointing to the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. It wasn't just that there was nothing else they could do, but the whole message was emphasizing that in their approach to God, there was a transferring of their sin onto an innocent sacrifice. It's exactly the same for us in the New Testament. When we approach God, we come to Calvary, and our sin is transferred to an innocent sacrifice upon an old rugged cross. Amen. And when God, in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus chapter 12... God gave Moses instructions to introduce what became known as the Passover, the first Passover. And when God gave Moses these instructions, not only do we have now a type of death, but we also have a time frame. We have a date because the Lord gave Moses, he said, we're going to give you a new calendar. He said, it's going to be the first month of this new calendar that's going to belong to my people And on this particular day, they were to take that lamb. And for those of you who may not know that bit of of Old Testament as well as others, Israel, the people of Israel were prisoners. They were slaves in bondage in the nation of Egypt. They They had gone into Egypt as free people, but over generations they had become enslaved because the Egyptians feared them. And the people cried out to the Lord. The Lord heard them, and he sent Moses to be their deliverer. And Moses came in and he challenged Pharaoh and said, God said, let my people go. And understandably, with a free workforce of several million people, Pharaoh wasn't too keen on that idea. And so we see this toing and froing, this confrontation of, of the Lord performing supernatural things and bringing plagues upon the nation of Egypt and Moses coming back in and Pharaoh saying, okay, take it away. But then he hardens his heart again and God brings another plague. We see this backwards and forwards and and when you read of some of the things that that happened, the, the plagues that were brought upon that land, we know the water was turned into blood. There was a plague of frogs. Now, frogs might not seem to bother you too much if you see the occasional frog, but if they were in your house and in your cupboard and in your bed and in everywhere you went there were frogs, that would get pretty oppressive after a while. And then there was a plague of lice where it was as if the dust of the ground was turned into lice. Any one of you that's ever had school kids that have come home with lice knows how painful that is to try to get lice. But they were everywhere. Everybody was covered in lice. You know, watch and see how long it takes for someone to scratch. It's amazing what happens when you paint a picture, people start. Some of you ladies will go home and say to your husbands, could you just check my hair, please? I was scratching during church. But many of the plagues were brought upon the nation of Egypt trying to, I guess, cause Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. And when you study Scripture, when it came to that 10th event, the introduction of the Passover, we know from Scripture that it was that date that God gave Moses that Jesus was crucified upon. That as they kept the Passover feast every single year in remembrance of what happened in their past they were also demonstrating a pattern for what would happen in their future. They look back to their deliverance physically as a nation, reenacting that feast every year and keeping that Passover feast as a holy time of remembrance. But for every generation from Exodus chapter 12 through the beginning of the New Testament, it was pointing towards a time when Jesus Christ would come out of the wilderness, having been in prayer and fasting for 40 days, come to the River Jordan, and John the Baptist would say, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Every year they kept Passover for century after century, leading to that point. And there is so much in that type. Today, at least according to our calendar, is Easter Sunday. This weekend has been designated to remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And my wife's already referenced that today. But Orthodox Christianity has deliberately distanced itself from keeping this weekend on the same date that the Jews keep the Passover. You can look into that and research it if you want to. In fact, historically, they've combined this remembrance of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with a pagan festival or celebration and brought the two together to try to keep everybody happy and uh, let me be very clear i'm not on an anti-easter crusade this morning so if you have had chocolate eggs or bunnies at all this weekend please don't feel like we're preaching against you i've eaten a little bit of chocolate myself this weekend but if we were going to accurately remember the dates we would be doing so using the jewish calendar and lining up with the feast of the passover and Some of you theologians can debate exactly the timing of his death, burial, and resurrection. I've seen a bit of that floating around on social media during the week. And so for us, the first Passover, when the Lord brought his people out of Egypt, is one of the most powerful types of the death of Jesus for our sins. But there's another type as well on this side of Calvin, because the Passover is also a type of repentance as a part of us being born again, or what sometimes we refer to as the new birth process. when In the book of Acts chapter 2, and many of you could quote this, when the Apostle Peter stood and preached that message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to that crowd that was there that day, when they came to understand that they were responsible, not necessarily for physically hammering in the nails, but they came to understand that their sin was the reason he was crucified, They said to Peter, what shall we do? Peter answering that question said, you need to repent. He said, you need to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The gift of the Holy Ghost was only minutes, possibly hours old for the Apostle Peter because he and the other 119 people that were in the upper room had just received it themselves for the first time. And so Peter gives us another parallel where he said Jesus' death and His burial and His resurrection is very much a type of what happens when we are born again. When we repent, there is a death that takes place. Not physically, but that old lifestyle we have to die out from. The Bible says that when we're baptized in Jesus' name, that we are buried with Him in baptism. I'm glad we baptize in water. We don't put people in a hole in the ground and cover them with dirt. We wouldn't baptize very many people. But we are buried with Him in baptism. And the Bible says that as He rose from the dead, when we receive the Holy Ghost, there is a new life that comes into us spiritually. And so even on this side of Calvary, there is another type that is a parallel that runs all the way through the Word of God. Amen. So prior, getting back to the Exodus, prior to Moses giving the instructions for the Passover, for that lamb to be a sacrifice, there had been nine different plagues. That's four, I can't count. I don't have nine fingers on that hand, so just do that five and four. Okay. There had been nine different plagues that had come upon the Egyptians as Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites go. Pharaoh and Egypt, when you study the Word of God, I'm covering some of this. You can ask me about later. I haven't got time to explain it all. But Pharaoh and Egypt were a type of sin and a type of the bondage of sin. God's people were there. They were in slavery. They were in bondage. It's a type of the the grip of sin upon humanity. And it's worth noticing today that even though there were signs and wonders, even though there were miracles that could only have happened supernaturally, Every time one of those miracles took place, the people were still in slavery. Nothing changed in their status until the blood of the Lamb was shed. Until that sacrifice was taken and its blood was shed, then their status began to change. Then the opportunity arose for them to finally leave Egypt. We need to be careful today that we do not follow after signs and wonders. That we do, I believe in signs and wonders, don't get me wrong. But we do not pursue ministries that promise the miraculous. Because no matter how many miracles you see, if a preacher does not bring you to Calvary and does not bring you to the blood of the Lamb, you're still in bondage. Jesus said, except you believe that I am He, you shall die in your sins. It doesn't matter if he heals your body from every illness that's ever been studied in medical school. It doesn't matter if he raises you from the dead, miraculously gives you fortunes and wealth, unless you've been born again. You're still in bondage in your sins. And so when the blood was shed, and every Egyptian home lost their firstborn child, Pharaoh finally relented and said, they could go. He said to Moses, that's enough. That's enough take your people get out of my sight I Don't want to see you again and the israelites when you when you read exodus chapter 12 the israelites as part of the instructions that moses gave them they were to take that lamb to kill it to shed its blood they were to take the blood collect some in some sort of a basin and to apply blood to the doorposts and the lentil or the top of the doorway of their houses not exactly something that happens in every house and garden magazine But this was the instruction of God. There had to be blood applied to their homes. But not only that, when they ate that Passover meal within their houses, they had to do so dressed, ready to travel. They had to have their shoes on their feet, their coats on, and their stuff in their hand in a state of readiness. Couldn't have their slippers on or their house shoes and their old comfortable clothes that we all have that we wear at home but we wouldn't go out in public in. They had to be ready to go. They had to be ready to go. And this is, again, talking about types and shadows, this is a beautiful type of repentance. Because when we repent from our sins, that, old, that word is an old English word meaning to turn around. They used to use it on military playgrounds when they were the, the sergeant major or the drill sergeant would cry out, repent, the soldiers would do a complete U-turn and march in an opposite direction. But when we repent, it involves more than just a sorrow and a regret for our sins when we understand that we have sinned against god we ought to be sorrowful when we understand that we have broken the law of god and that because of our sins he went to calvary there ought to be regret there ought to be that sorrow but repentance also includes a demonstrated willingness to leave that life behind to leave that life behind. You see, those people in Egypt, even if they had obeyed all of Moses' instructions but never been willing to leave, they would have remained in slavery in Egypt. Even if the blood was on the doorpost, even if they'd eaten everything like they were supposed to and shoes on their feet and coats on and staff in their hand, but they didn't want to leave their house, they would have stayed in the same bondage that God wanted to deliver them from. Amen. Genuine repentance brings, I believe, a temporary break from the power of sin that enables us to leave Egypt behind us. When you repent sincerely, God gives you the opportunity to walk away from sin, to leave addictions and habits and whatever it is that you know is sinful behind you and to walk towards him. I believe that. But if we choose to remain in sin, the same sin that He has given us the opportunity to walk free from will enslave us again because we stay in that same environment. See, when Pharaoh realized, you read the Old Testament, when Pharaoh realized after the Israelites had left, but he came to think, hang on a sec, I've just allowed a free workforce to leave, he changed his mind. And he went after the Israelites. He took his army and he went after the Israelites. If those Israelites had stayed in Egypt, there would have been no need to pursue them. That has still been there. They would have gone through all the motions of the sacrifice and all the rest of it, but the next day they would have still been making bricks for the temples of a wicked king. But Pharaoh pursued after the Israelites, and the Israelites, the Bible says, came to the Red Sea. was in front of them mountains on either side and the angry egyptian army coming hard behind then we know that the lord supernaturally parted the waters of the red sea miraculously caused the waters to pile up and opened a highway across the red sea and two things happened two things happened when the lord did this the first thing was the israelites who had obeyed the word of god done what they were supposed to do and left egypt when they were told to Walked across the, the, the bottom of that sea on dry land, the Bible says, dry shod. It wasn't, God didn't just push the waters back, He dried the ground up for them as well. And they walked across that sea miraculously. That's, that's the first thing. The second thing that happened was that the Egyptian army was destroyed as the waters crashed back together. So before God opened the Red Sea, Moses told the people in Exodus 14, and 13 he said and Moses said unto the people fear ye not stand still and see the salvation of the Lord which he will show you today and then he said this for the egyptians whom you have seen today you shall see them again no more forever amen gone forever you see again we we we're, we're talking at least for the moment about some of the examples the types and shadows in the scripture See, when we repent, we have to, we, when we have that first contact with that sacrificial lamb, not a little fluffy white thing, but Jesus on a cross, we have to leave Egypt. We have to leave behind the bondage and the slavery of sin. But it doesn't stop there. And this is the, the tragedy of so many people's experiences is that there is a genuine repentance in their heart and a desire to serve God and to walk away from sin, but they don't know what happens next. But this is why it is so important that after we repent from our sins, we go to the waters of baptism and be baptized in Jesus' name. Because just looking at that type again, not only are our sins washed away in baptism, that's what the Bible says. Peter said, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission. That word means forgiveness, the taking away of our sins. But not only are our sins washed away, But just as the Egyptian army was destroyed, the power of the things that held us captive is gone. It's destroyed forever. Amen. It no longer has a hold on us. Now, I believe you can go back to Egypt if you're foolish. And there were times in the wilderness that the Israelites said, oh, we want to go back to Egypt. They had such good food. We had houses. Yeah, but we forgot we also had slavery every day and making bricks and but when you keep going forward, the power of the things that held you captive has been destroyed. And Moses said to his people, you'll see it never again. They're gone. Amen. The Israelites fought a lot of battles in their journey to the promised land. But I challenge you to show me somewhere where they fought Egyptians again. Egypt was done. It was gone. Amen. Bless the Lord. And so the death of the Passover lamb, this is normally a resurrection sunday i'm a bit mixed up i'm still on good friday so you're gonna have to forgive me but the death of the passover lamb and the death of every sin offering through the old testament we understand was pointing ahead to calvary where jesus would die for us every time they offered a sacrifice and we think well that's terrible it's graphic it's inhumane what do you think calvary was you know, everybody gets hung up about animal cruelty. What about the King of kings manifest in the flesh? The one who never sinned in his life in fact was without sin. The Bible says, but was made sin for us i don 't like you know i 'm glad we don 't have to do animal sacrifice. You know I think if I had to kill my own animals i 'd probably be vegetarian. I like my meat on foam trays with plastic on it i don 't want to have to kill it myself and i 'm not making light of the fact that so many animal lives were shared in sacrifice and approach to god but it it shows us the the serious nature of our sin it's not a light thing it's a serious thing that we broke the word of god amen so we know the passover points to calvary and when you and i responded to the gospel somebody shared the gospel with us somebody preached to us in the church service somebody did a bible study however it may have been when you and i responded to the gospel and repented of our sins for the first time in one way it was as if we had our own passover we came and knelt for the first time at the cross of christ not physically we didn't you can't even find the cross of christ and it, if you could find the wooden structure it would have no significance but it wasn't because it's not about the timber it's about the life that was shed upon the cross but when we repent we come to that place of death We say, Lord, that old life needs to be finished. I need to walk out of Egypt. And then as he was buried, we're buried in his name in baptism. And as he rose again, so his spirit fills us with new life. And I wish that was where the story stopped. But while there is something very, very special about the first time you repent from your sins, the dying doesn't stop there. This is really where I want to get to today. Types and shadows are wonderful. I love to look at the Scripture and to see the different examples that are there because what it does is when I look in the Old Testament, recognizing that it was penned centuries before the New, and I can see one referring back to the other, it just reminds me that it is the Word of God, that it's authored by God Himself. But the thing about a type is a type can only show us so much before it steps into what it must fulfill. Amen. Because I can see that his death and his burial and his resurrection line up very nicely in the Word of God with when we repent, when we're baptized, and when we're filled with the Holy Ghost. I can see that lines up really nicely. But you see, not long after Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven. We read that in Acts chapter 1. Now, when I received the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues, and you received the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues, we had a heavenly experience. Amen. Being filled with the Spirit of God is the best experience that we can have. If you've never received the Holy Ghost, I encourage you to seek that as the Scripture says that we can have it. But even though I had a heavenly experience, it didn't take too long for me to realize, I don't know about you, but it didn't take too long for me to realize that the sinful nature I had before I was born again was still there. I didn't get filled with the Holy Ghost and go to heaven. So the type hits a little bit of a bump in the road here because he ascended into heaven, the right hand, the position of power and authority of the Lord. I still have my sinful nature. And in our opening text from John chapter 12, We read about grain being sown into into the ground, and there's a principle there that life comes from death. That principle is given to us. To be a productive crop, that grain has got to go into the ground, that it might bring forth much grain. One little grain of wheat can bring forth a stalk of of wheat that might have multiple heads of grain. But you see, that's not a once-off. To be a productive farm, that grain, once it's harvested, some of it at least has to go back into the ground. Otherwise, there's one harvest and that's the end of the show. But anybody that farms will tell you there is seed that is kept as seed wheat. That when the time of, of, of planting comes again, some of the last harvest is re-sown back into the ground. And that principle applies in our relationships with the lord we don't simply repent the once there's not only that time where once i say lord i'm sorry and everything's just rosy after that there is a principle in the scripture that i must continue to be sown into the ground as it were if i'm going to bring forth the life that he would have me to bring forth go with me to philippians chapter 3 Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10 says that I may know him the power of his resurrection the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable under his death and it's taken me a little while to get here but the title and the focus of my message is being made conformable under his death that's where I want it to bring us to this morning that's why we've taken this journey through the old testament types this passage of scripture in philippians 3 this verse is situated in the 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 passage that this verse is situated in the middle of speaks of an ongoing event not a once off you know we can we can make the mistake of reading that verse and saying being made conformable unto his death yes i repented of my sins did that 1987 1994 whenever it was that you first repented of your sins. But I believe that would be a poor understanding of the passage because the language that Paul uses in this chapter speaks of an ongoing situation. He uses expressions in the surrounding verses like, follow after and press towards and reaching forth. He's talking about something that is still a part of his existence. It's not something he said, well, you did that when you repented. He said, no, no, I'm still reaching. He said, I'm still pressing. I'm still following after. There's something that he was doing repeatedly, even daily, is the impression that we're given from his epistles. In fact, the amplified version of that verse says, by being continually conformed to his death. Paul, Paul's epistles, were written to believers who had already identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When he wrote the epistle to Philippi and every other one of the epistles that he wrote, Ephesians and Corinthians and Romans, not once were they epistles to the general public. Not once did he take out a full page spread in the, the Philippi bugle or the Corinthian times or, or whatever and write these letters to the general public, but his epistles were written to people who had already identified with the death in repentance, the burial in baptism, and the resurrection by receiving the Holy Ghost. And yet he wrote to them about the need to continue to reach, to follow, to press forth, to be acquainted with the fellowship of his sufferings and to be made conformable unto his death. And so there is a deeper principle here than simply our initial repentance, And if we would read this verse and just skim over it and say, Yes, I've repented, I believe we would be in error. The New Testament, in the New Testament, the word conform or conformed or conformable is taken from one of two Greek words. And I'm not a Greek scholar, you all know that. But it is taken from two Greek words. One is used negatively, and the other is used positively. Let's have a look at the negative application. Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1 talks about how the Apostle Paul urges or beseeches people to present their bodies a living sacrifice. Verse 2 says, And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of god there are two form words here in verse two one is conformed the other one is transformed transformed simply means a change of form we are changed from one form into another but the greek word that conformed is taken from here speaks about people that are being pushed about here and there by fashion by trends by social pressure They are changeable. They are unstable and the the conforming has no impact on the inward person. It's just an external thing. You know, we can talk about fashion, we can talk, you know, many of us laugh, you take out the family photo album, you look back at the things that your parents wore when they were young and you think, What were they thinking? What in the world were they thinking in the seventies? when they wore some of those crazy and some of you were around then i was a kid so i can deny responsibility my mother dressed me i didn't get a choice but we look back and we say but it was because of fashion and there was an image and a pushing and a shaping and you watch fashion it comes around again and some of the things that we laugh at from the 70s have already come back once and they'll come back another time again so hang on to those old clothes you might save some money in 20 years time that's assuming you can still get into them I certainly can't. But see, that's what fashion does. It pushes us one way and then it pushes us another way. We go from wearing clothes that are so baggy we can hardly keep them up to clothes that are so tight you can hardly breathe and everywhere in between. And it happens because of fashion. I've said to my kids, particularly one of my children, on more than one occasion, you know, you're, going to look, you're going to look back on this photo in time and you're going to realize Dad was right. But... Like all of us when we were young, and you know, my kids look at photos of me when I was young and say, Dad, those clothes you're wearing. You know, what were you doing? It's like, I'm just wearing the clothes. My parents bought them for me. But that's, this word conformed comes from that kind of a concept. It's changeable. It's transient. It's being tossed to and fro without stability. And everything's external. Nothing's happening on the inside. But the word Conformed or conformable that we read in Philippians 3 and 10 about being made conformable unto his death also appears in Romans 8 and 29. It also speaks of change. But it's a change that takes place at the level of our character. It's not external. It's not just a fashion, you know, baggy jeans, tight jeans, whatever the case may be. It's an internal change that takes place at the level of our character and because it takes place at that level it is a more complete change that is durable that will last and that is god's desire when he wants to transform us yes i believe with all my heart that god wants to change the outward man as well but god works from the inside to the out and when we are conformed by him it happens at the level of our character and our identity not simply how we look and how we fit in with a particular social trend that's happening in pop culture around about us but god wants to change us within and for that change to take place you know at that level we all say i want to be changed i want god to change me but there is a process for that change to take place it requires that we deliberately in other words on purpose choose to participate in the regular, Paul went as far as to say daily, putting to death the sinful nature that, I don't know about you, but mine seems to resurrect with every sunrise. I might have had a good day serving the Lord one day, but when I get up in the morning, that old man is getting up with me every day. You can't get up too early enough to leave him behind. He gets up when you get up, whether you get up early or you sleep in. That sinful nature gets up with you every day. And if you want to be made conformable into the likeness of his death, you have to consciously make that decision that that old nature must still die again. Amen. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. And so while our initial repentance, that Passover experience, and our ongoing repentance when we sin, while that initial repentance does identify with the death of Jesus upon the cross, it does identify with the Passover. The being made conformable to his death part that we read about in Philippians 3 and 10, when we're talking about types, it probably lines up more with the Garden of Gethsemane than it does with the cross. Because Gethsemane... Many of you know the story of Jesus' last hours of how after the Last Supper had taken place and Judas had gone out to betray the Lord, Jesus and his disciples went to the Garden of Gethsemane. But what some people failed to realize is that this wasn't a strange place to him. The Bible indicates that he went there regularly. It was a familiar place to him. It was a place that he went to pray. It was a place that he went to be alone with God. And the garden, the word Gethsemane means the place of the olive press. It was the place where olives, it was a small olive grove it would seem, and they were able, they had a press there to be able to crush the olives and to remove that virgin olive oil that came out in that press. Bless the Lord. You see, when Jesus died and rose again, it was necessary, the Bible tells us, for Him to do that for the Holy Ghost to be poured out. If you read John 14, Jesus said, I'm going away, I'm going to come back. He said, it's necessary for me to go away that you might receive the Comforter, that you might receive the Holy Ghost. It was necessary. And our initial repentance, stay with me this morning, our our initial repentance is necessary for us to receive the infilling of the Holy Ghost. You cannot receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost without genuine repentance. Now, I'm not saying you have to pray and cry and weep and travail for hours and days, but when there is a genuine repentance in our hearts, we become ready to receive the baptism of the Spirit of God, just like His death on the cross was necessary for the Holy Ghost to be poured out. But if we want to see the fruit of the Spirit, if we want to see the transforming power of the Spirit in an ongoing fashion. it's easy to receive the Holy Ghost. That's not hard. But then there is a need for us to grow. We need not only to repent of our sins, but we need to find ourselves regularly like Jesus did in Gethsemane, in the place of the olive press, in that place where that which we produce naturally is crushed. Where it's broken. It is through the conforming unto his death, from Philippians 3, and the crushing of the carnal nature. We can use that physical example that the oil is released, that the anointing of the Spirit of God is released into our lives and is able to bring about the change and the transformation that God desires. It's not once off at Calvary, it's not once off at a Passover. I I know. I understand that when when we fall short of the mark, when we stumble, when we sin, we go back to the cross to repent of that sin. But when we're talking about being transformed, being changed, there's a place where we have to submit our human nature to the nature and the will of God and become what He wants us to be. Hallelujah. God wants to change us. Jesus did not go to the cross that we might take a long weekend once or twice a year and acknowledge his existence but he went to the extreme measures that he went to because he wants to bring about extreme change in us not an extreme makeover like the world would have where they do your hair and get your new wardrobe and put you through a fitness regime and there's nothing wrong with some of that but god wants to change us at the level of our character that's why Galatians writes me a list of the things that are the works of the flesh. You can read that in Galatians 5. Those things are all unpleasant. It talks about hatred, talks about drunkenness, talks about immorality and idolatry and, and all kinds of horrible things. They are all the natural fruit of the sinful nature of mankind. But if I will be filled with the Spirit of God, and allow Him to crush that natural fruit, as it were, the anointing of the Holy Ghost can come out. And the same chapter in Galatians 5 says that I can begin to bear the fruit of the Spirit, not immorality and drunkenness and violence, but love, joy, peace, goodness, gentleness, long-suffering, meekness, faith, and temperance. These things are only produced when I am being made conformable unto His death. When the sinful nature sits upon the throne of my life, it's all about what I want. My rights, my desires, my opinions, my preferences, my comfort, my independence do what I want to do. You know, you cannot negotiate with God. And we negotiate often in law, we negotiate contracts with employers and employees, we negotiate contracts when you buy a house. There's, between people, there's a lot of negotiating taking place because usually there's, we're both trying to look for a, an agreement that is mutually beneficial. If I was selling you my house, and I'm not, so don't ask for it, but if I was selling you my house, I would be looking for a price where I can make a little bit of money, let's be honest. You would be looking for a price that you can afford to pay back. Because we're both going to get something out of this arrangement. But when I come to Jesus, there's not much I have to say, Lord, if you really want this, you're going to have to meet me in the middle somewhere. When I come to Him, all I have is brokenness and sin, addictions and heartache and misery. And He has forgiveness, salvation, joy, peace and love. And so when I come to him, I'm not in a position to negotiate. I can't say, well, that's as far as I'm willing to go. If you can't match that, I'm walking out of here. I can say that, but I would be a fool to do so. Because when I come to him, he has everything. And I have nothing. And yet, and yet, in a very bizarre turn of events, he is willing to exchange what I have. For what he has, he says, I will take your brokenness. I will take your sin. I will take your addictions and your messed up family and your psychological problems, etc., etc., etc. If you will surrender them to me in their place, I will give you forgiveness of sins. I will fill you with my spirit. I will write your name in the Lamb's book of life. I'll give you love. I'll give you joy. I'll give you peace. I'll give you victory over sin. But there is a condition. If I want that exchange, I've got to surrender everything I've got. That independence, no no, that's gone. I can't say my rights, I've got talking to talk about whatever you want, Lord. I'll give it to you unconditionally. You cannot negotiate with God. See when that sinful nature sits on the throne, it's all about me. It's all about what Simon wants. And every morning, as I've already mentioned, when I get out of bed. That ugly old sinful nature is trying to push off the throne, the Spirit of God. And I've got to say, not today. I've got to go back to Gethsemane. I've got to go back to that place and I've got to take that sinful nature by the scruff of the throat and drag it off that throne and take it down to the olive press and say, Lord, break it again. Break my will. Break my desires, my preferences, my rights, my independence and be glorified through me. That's what it means to be made conformable under his death. But when my idea of how I serve Jesus is fitting him into my life and my culture and my society and my preferences, I may, and I use the word may, find salvation. Because I can to be born again is not hard. But to stay that way and to stay in relationship with God is going to cost us something. Amen. When I put him on the throne... It's what he wants, his word, his kingdom, his will, his authority, total dependence upon him and his ways. You know, we would be very scared to completely surrender to another person. You know why? Because people are flawed. If I was to find myself to be Brother Chi-Chi's slave, it's a scary thought right there. But that would mean that anything he wants goes in my life. He speaks, I obey. Now, as much as I love him, I'm not sure I trust him with that level of authority in my life. But you see, when you come to the Lord, you don't have to worry about giving him that level of authority because everything he wants for us is good. Everything he wants for us is for our benefit. It does us good. And so we have to come to him and say, God, I give complete authority to you, not just to you, but to your will and to your ways and to the things that he sets up in his kingdom. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. We're going to read a passage, and I want to point something out, and we're going to get ready to have communion. I don't know if we've ever had communion on Easter weekend before. I'm a little reluctant to do things just for the traditional nature, but this morning I felt like it was what the Lord wanted us to do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this really is the, I don't know if proof text is the right expression, but this is where we find the most concise instruction about how we approach the table of the Lord in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 11 and 23, the Apostle Paul said, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup. And when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Amen. Uh, Brother Paul or Sister Pam, if you could just let Brother Thomas know that we're going to be having communion soon, interrupt the Sunday school. Verse 25 lets us know. And this is, I guess, we would possibly say the primary reason for communion, is that as oft as we do it, we do it in remembrance of the Lord. We need to keep Calvary in our minds. We need to keep what the Lord did for us close to our minds and in our hearts. But then, in verse 26, it says, For as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes thinking about what that means to show the lord's death until he comes paul is writing to a church again remembering the context so the people that he's giving instruction to the people that are going to be taking communion are believers they're born again they know jesus died for them they believe in his death and the price that he paid for their sins and so when they take the tokens the that which represents His body and His blood, they are doing so in remembrance of Him. But when it says that we, we show forth, in verse 26, you do show the Lord's death till He come. i got to think about what that really means. I mean, the, the people that were there already believed in Jesus' death. But that word show is usually translated in the New Testament as preach, proclaim, or declare. And so Calvary and communion, which is a memorial for Calvary, is as much as the memorial is powerful, it is a time also where we bring ourselves to the cross again, but also to Gethsemane, because we want to be conformable unto his death, because it is through my transformed life that others will see the power of his death. It is, it's not just within the confines of a church, but it is the transformation of our lives that preaches the gospel to others. That's why the Bible says that we are epistles seen and read or known and read of all men. There needs to be something about the change that happens in us and to us that others would see Him, that others would hear Him without us necessarily even opening our mouths. And that will only happen by being conformable under his death. And so when we, when we participate in communion, there, there, are, there are many things that, that are happening at the communion table. And I want to make something very clear. Communion is very, very powerful. Very powerful. It's not just a religious sacrament. It's not just a tradition. It's important we understand that communion is not, to use a theological word, salvific. It doesn't take away your sins. We're not saved by participating in communion. It's it's not part of being born again. The Apostle Peter didn't say, repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Ghost, and take communion. He said, you need to repent, be baptized in Jesus' name, receive the Holy Ghost. So it's important that we understand that taking communion does not take away our sins. But what communion can do, when we take this time to consider and remember the Lord's death, it is an opportunity for us to realign ourselves with Calvary. It's an opportunity for us to stop, consider our lives, consider the direction of our lives, consider the actions and the thoughts and intents of our lives and bring them back into subjection to God and to His will. So communion can be a time where we are able to get right with God, if I can use that expression. But it's not a place where you get saved if you understand the difference. You've got to be born again of water and spirit to be saved. But even after we're born again of water and spirit, because of that sinful nature, sometimes we wander, sometimes we stray, sometimes we stumble, and communion can be an opportunity to examine ourselves. And that's why the Apostle Paul said, he said in verse 28, he said, "...let a man examine himself." The verse before says that if we eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, that we are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So to take it lightly is a very dangerous thing. That's what the Bible says. That's not the opinion of Simon Butcher. The Word of God says that if we, if we take it unworthily, that we drink damnation to ourselves. That's very strong language. So this morning, as we prepare to have communion and communion, I and mean, sister authors i'd like you to prepare the table if you would it's not something that is designed to exclude us but at the same time it is something that we need to treat with great reverence because these emblems represent the sacrifice of jesus christ we do not believe the scripture does not teach that these emblems literally become the body and the blood of Jesus when you eat them like some people believe. That's unscriptural. In fact, I'll go as far as to say it's wicked. But they are tokens. They are memorials that we remember. And we, we have memorial days for, for battles and for soldiers that gave their lives for our nation. And we, we, we draw a connection between those memorials and the freedom that we live in. When we come to the communion table... We're not talking about the sacrifice of many souls. We're talking about one lamb of God. But the freedom that he brought It's not democracy. It's not living in a first world country. It's freedom from sin and the opportunity to spend eternity with the Lord. And so I'm going to ask you to stand.